This episode of the Art of Coaching Podcast is brought to you by Saga Fitness. We all know there is a difference between working harder and working smarter with respect to efficiency. And this is where Saga's BFR cuffs come into play. Summer's creeping up, which means more time for getting outside, family outings and the like. So whether you're a recreational exerciser, somebody who walks your dog at night, or a competitive athlete, you wanna maximize the moments you have to achieve your goals. These cuffs are user-friendly, they're affordable, and they link directly to your phone, which takes care of all calibration. Listen, if you're like me and you're a visual person and everything I just said to you sounds like jargon, just go to saga.fitness and take a look at them for yourself. While you're there, use code BRETT, B-R-E-T-T-20, that's two zero, for a discount. I know either you or somebody else in your life is active or appreciates pushing the limits of their physical boundaries, and these will help them do it in a smarter way. Again, that's saga.fitness, code BRETT20. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me. And now let's dive into today's episode. It's a daunting question to ask, and one that might even get you in trouble if you wonder it out loud in the wrong company. When, if at all, is it okay to give up on a student or somebody you mentor? Now, you might have just spit out your coffee hearing that, the term give up specifically, and thought to yourself, never. But I urge you to consider this. What's the difference between guiding somebody and helping them, or possibly facilitating learned helplessness if they don't know how to get out of their own way and help themselves. What is the role of a mentor? These are some of the questions that we're gonna ask and I hope you struggle with a little bit during today's episode. And my guest today is Dr. Katie Heinrich, professor of exercise behavioral science and the director of the Functional Intensity Training Lab in the Department of Kinesiology at Kansas State University. Now this is a special episode for me. Kansas State is my alma mater, at least for my undergraduate tenure. And it is also the first accredited university to bring our courses bought in and valued and merge them into their undergraduate curriculum to help coaches really get a head start on their career and teach them things about the field of coaching and all of its nuances to help them make sure that they're not going in with any kind of naivete. Because as many of you listening know, regardless of what you do for a profession, it is much more than knowing the hard skills and networking. There are always political nuances and there are always little ins and outs that can help you stand out ahead of your competition. Now, some other things that we're going to talk about is why communities make it easier for us to join or change our behavior. And this is something that Dr. Robert Cialdini talks quite a bit about, this idea of shared identities, right? How we uh, can bring people in together as groups to change 
this behavior that normally if they were by themselves, they just wouldn't. And we see this through apps and all other kinds of health initiatives that have helped and sometimes even hindered these efforts in the past and future. We're also gonna talk about the use of the term soft skills. We hear this a lot when it comes to communication, but is it appropriate? Is it appropriate when communication and persuasion are subjects that date back 3,000 years and have more than a half century of research behind them? When you hear soft skills, you tend to think of these things that ah, we can't really be taught or you better be born with. And we're going to go into the myths there. So I cannot wait for you to dive into this episode. Make sure that you've downloaded your podcast reflection sheet done by our very own Allie Kirshner. And let's get into it. Without further ado, Dr. Katie Heinrich. Hey guys, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Once again, I am here with Dr. Katie Heinrich. Katie, how are you? I'm doing well, Brett. How are you? I'm doing great. It's nice talking to you again. The first time we chatted was our mutual connection of Christian Larson, who is also on the show. And uh, it, it feels like a long time ago, but really that was only about a year, right? Yeah, I I don't know. I've lost all track of time during COVID-19, so... <laughs> Yeah. I can't even remember. I, I think that uh, I think that is completely reasonable. It's interesting for some of our viewers or listeners who maybe, you know, they're removed from the academic world and, and they've heard about how some of the changes have impacted the day-to-day realities there. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about what what it's been like just kicking off, going from what was the previous normal to how your reality at Kansas State or if you want to talk about colleagues or what have you, like what's it like now inside those walls? Yeah, well, what it's like now this spring is actually different than than what it was like um, even last fall because it's been changing, you know, as as things have been opening back up. But it really turned our university into a ghost town. And rather than coming into the office every day, I was going downstairs to my office in the guest bedroom every day and teaching my classes online and just seeing my, you know, even meeting with with my students in my research lab, everything was being conducted virtually. Our research switched to being virtual, um, which actually enabled my PhD students to recruit uh, participants from all over the world, which was cool. But um, it's it's very different. But the nice thing was we realized that we can do a lot of things online versus having to get together in person, which makes scheduling a lot easier um, for things like this, this podcast, you know, the university is recognizing that, oh, hey, we can, we can do things like this. And I think it's led to some innovations in education that maybe we wouldn't have had otherwise. Our department is in the process of moving our bachelor's degree in kinesiology completely online um, and, and things like that. So it's, it, it's, it's been an interesting journey. Now things are starting to open back up. I am teaching a class in person this semester, which the students really like. We're all wearing masks, which is an interesting experience, trying to interpret students' body language and their understanding when I can't see their full face um, has been a little bit challenging. But you know, by the fall, we're projecting to open everything back up. That's, that's great insight. And I do have to ask you something in conjunction with what you mentioned there. Uh, and this is a, a maybe a humorous aside, maybe I'm the weirdo, but you mentioned interacting in masks, right? And we, we live by a Costco and we're going there the other day 
and you have the mask on. And I find, you know, especially since I'm a nerd with communication and coaching, I realized that, oh, like I never really thought about this, but as I'm looking at the woman across the counter, uh, I can't really tell, you know, how, how she's, tra- like what kind of body language she's transmitting in terms of facial expression, right? The kinesics of her face. And so I think, well, I'm probably not great at that either. And I have pretty, you know, our audience can't see us right now, but I have pretty narrow eyes. So I start thinking about how can I be more expressive? Cause you know, we can all give off a lot uh, of different, I would say vibes. And so I start thinking, all right, to show interest when I actually ask her how her day is, I need to raise my eyebrows, but what's too much? What's too much of an eyebrow raise? What, how do I do this? She can't see. Do you ever find yourself wondering just for a moment, like, well, okay, I can't tell what that student's doing. By the way, what am I doing? Does that ever get a little weird for a second? Yes. Um, that, that definitely has been challenging. Um, you know, sometimes I'm thinking the students cannot tell that I'm smiling right. underneath this mask. And how do I communicate that? And in a way that I don't look like a clown. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, Cause, yeah. cause it in- increases, right. The, ch- the chance of these misunderstandings, somebody said something the other day online where they're like, man, we have more communication tools than ever before. And I'm like, yeah, but the irony is we have more miscommunications because we learn how to use the tools but we don't understand ourselves, and we're the ultimate tool in terms of, well, that could go across both ways, but in terms of not being aware of these little things. So I always think as, as annoying as having to wear, you know, mask can be and what have you in, in certain situations, it's also given me a new awareness of like thinking about how am I emoting? Uh, because now people aren't going to get the benefit of the doubt. You can't always tell by tone of voice. You can't always tell by these kinds of things. So I can only imagine how much that's uh, changed your instructional style. Yeah, it has. The The other thing that I've tried to do is just tell the students what I'm thinking and feeling so that, you know, they, they may not be able to read it on my face. But, you know, if I made a joke and they're not sure if it's a joke, I'll tell them that. Or, you know, I've, I've tried to keep it real and say, you know, I had a terrible day yesterday. I was very unproductive and professors have bad days just like students do. So I understand and I, I get it if you guys are, are struggling a bit, you know, and just trying to voice some of those emotional reactions to everything that's going on versus trying to hide them and pretend that everything's perfect. Yeah, well, I think that's a valuable form of self-disclosure, right? Because we know that inherently you're their professor. So they they know or at least have this perception of you as somebody that's competent, right? You know the subject matter material, but warmth is something that is harder to gauge. And when you don't have some kind of warmth or you don't have that little bit of self-disclosure to know that, wow, you have that issue too, which even I was going to ask you when you mentioned how your day changed, how had your productivity and and the schedule you set for yourself as an academic uh, changed while you're at home? What did you struggle with most, for example? Was there an area where you were just like, oh my God, I'm so hopeless? It's um, a good question. You know, having little kids at home too and trying to find care for them added a whole nother layer on top of being responsible for a research lab and teaching classes and, you know, serving my professional organizations and doing grant reviews and all of that. So um, honestly, I think the hardest part was finding an outlet um, and becoming that person who worked out in my driveway and had my neighbors stare at me and wonder what she was doing in the middle of the day, <laughs> um, changing a lot of my meetings. Cause I was meeting by phone to walking meetings. So I could just 
get out and move because being stuck in the house versus being on campus and, and walking around, going going back and forth to meetings and classes, that was a struggle. Um, but you know, my my academic productivity still remains pretty high because I do collaborative research. And so I was able to continue a lot of efforts by having other people help me. Um, so that didn't suffer. Plus, when we first shifted over, I was only teaching a grad class of five students. So that was pretty easy to shift online versus if I was teaching, you know, a larger class, that would have been a lot harder. Um, but really, yeah, just being able to move was probably the, the thing that changed the most, having to search out ways to add that back into my day. Yeah, I think a lot of folks can relate to that. Now, you mentioned finding an outlet. You mentioned the term collaborate, uh, a collaborative research, rather. Uh, your neighbor's thinking you're crazy for when you train. You've also done some research on community. And in one of our episodes, you know, we talk about aspects of social proof and, you know, obviously things that uh, make us seem similar to one another tend to link us and, and can alter behavior change. Talk about, and this is this is posed broadly, on purpose. I want you to be able to take it where you'd like. Talk to me about some of the research you've done with the impact of community, whether it's on health outcomes or certain elements of behavior change. Talk to us a little bit about what got you interested in that. And then what some of your early curiosities or findings have been? Sure. So the framework for my research really was getting people to participate in exercise programs and particularly um, high-intensity functional training programs such as CrossFit, Mission Essential Fitness, the First 20, which is a firefighter program. And community was kind of the byproduct that I saw coming out of that, that as people engaged in the exercise programs, which pushed them, put them on a similar um, playing level where, you know, they're all doing the same workout modified to their individual abilities. So they have this shared experience, but they also have kind of the shared goals of whether it's, you know, improving their health, improving their body composition, improving their fitness, um, that they really, I, I noticed that they bonded with each other, that it was the other people they were interacting with in these programs that kept them and the coaches that kept them coming back. And you know, in looking at um, what makes up a community, it's feeling that you belong, that you have a role to play, that your contribution is valued. And um, I, I really noticed that that was happening in the research studies, which wasn't necessarily an intentional piece of it, but was clearly a very important piece. Yeah, I, I, it's important. You know, you said you have a role to play. This is always fascinating to me and whether it's in, in your case where you're looking at various exercise interventions and in public health, or we even think about this internally, we have uh, something called our Art of Coaching All Access group where I think I just got a little burned out on social media, not necessarily for the same reasons other people did, but you know, you're trying to put helpful information out and it was so truncated into a post or a 15 second response. And I found one thing that drained me, especially during COVID to speak more to your community is, you know, not, not always having these, uh, the frequency of meaningful interactions that I really wanted. You know, sometimes I would try an Instagram live or whatever to try to be helpful to others, but it would kind of end up being, uh, 
I don't know, the same kind of questions and people just wanted quick answers, one size fits all. So we started this community, it was, it was app-based, uh, it is app-based, and it's a way for us to have way longer interactions nothing's text, nobody needs to tweet or find a message board or whatever. It's You literally take your phone and you look at the video and there's a, a post that day that might be like, hi guys, we're gonna talk about nonverbals or communicating with masks or hey guys, we're gonna talk about how to lead a group, you know, that might do this or how to deal with harsh feedback. And now all these people start chirping, but at the beginning, to speak to your point, it, you know, it, it can sometimes get, be hard for people to play that role because they have to figure out their part in the group. They have to feel comfortable in the group. They have to feel welcome. And if they're going to have that shared experience, uh, sometimes people don't feel worthy of being in a group, which is always silly, but it's understandable. What levels of reticence do you find when you're looking at the interventions you looked at of like, hey, we have this community, we know the powerful benefits of it, but how do we get people to really own their part in being a part of that community? Is that, is that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah, it does. And it's funny because when you were talking, it made me think of the few individuals, which it was pretty small percentage, who did drop out of the study mm. and the reasons that they gave for that. And, you know, one participant, it was because she was substantially older than the other older adults in that study. And so she felt like she was holding them back, which she wasn't. Um, you know, another couple participants was that they felt like, you know, they, they just didn't feel like part of the group that they fit. And so what is it that causes people to buy in and, um, you know, and feel like they belong there and that, that they have a contribution? And I think it could be anything. It could be something as simple as somebody acknowledging them that day and the effort that they put forth. It could be like with um, when we do CrossFit interventions, realizing that, okay, maybe I'm really bad at weightlifting, but my goodness, I can uh, run or yeah. I can, you know, do do a certain aspect of it where maybe I suck in the other ones, but this one I'm good. And so I keep coming because I know I'm going to get better. Um, it could also be the personal connections. You know, we, we have ongoing program evaluation um, with our gym and we have, you know, deans at K-State that are working out with faculty members who are working out with um, undergrad and graduate students and members of the community. And they're able to connect with people that they otherwise wouldn't interact with. And they do that through this common medium of the exercise program. And so I wish I could say, oh, this is the magic thing no, it's <laughs> right? fine. It's that works. Than, yeah. But it's, I think it's different for each person. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's a totally appropriate question and it, and it's real. And we think about how communities are formed and even how you and I have built a little bit of a relationship now, right? There's, there's this alumni connection, me being a, a K-State alum. And you know, what, what we found is Initially, when we started doing what we did with Art of Coaching, we had some reticence on the side of performance coaches who previously stayed in their communities that wanted to just continue to learn about, you know, squats and sports science or whatever. It was kind of this Pavlovian response of that's always what they've gravitated to. And that's probably always what some folks are going to like. Whereas for us, a lot of people that gravitated to us were like, yeah, that stuff's interesting. But we've also understood that it's usually not the rate limiting factor, right? Like we can teach an athlete or an individual exercises, but there's larger social ramifications. So then we found our community, but for people to join, they've got to make sense of what is this thing? And then it's also got to be very easy. I've always thought that it's been fascinating that um, it, you look at kind of the design of an environment and let's look at an online environment. 
people are more likely to join a course or a seminar or whatever just based on what color a button might be or the verbiage you use. Apparently, click here is not a good thing. What what have you noticed that um, even though it's always going to depend, let's go the other way. What are some key ways that you know are actually going to turn somebody off from joining a community, right? This idea of like, well, I don't know what always will get them to buy in, but here's definitely what's going to keep them away. Yeah. Um, I think word of mouth, having people, you know, who've had a negative experience in the past or, um, why do you, you know, maybe it's a family member. Why do you want to go try out high intensity exercise? You should be like walking and just lifting weights and, um, that, that could be part of it. Um, another could be coming and not having the best experience that first time, like that, that first visit, most people, if they feel like they didn't have a good experience the first time, why in the world would you go back? Um, it could be not feeling like you did a good job or not feeling like you fit or not feeling like anybody cared that you were there. Um, I know in particular, we asked this question when we did some qualitative research, we did interviews and focus groups with uh, CrossFit participants and owners. And some of it was perception of CrossFit as a cult Mm. or um, thinking it's intimidating or, you know, seeing only seeing the CrossFit games on TV, which are extraordinary. You know, that's that's our pro athletes, if you will, of CrossFit doing extraordinary things and thinking, well, I could never do that. Why, you know, and that's nothing like what our gym looks like on a, on a day-to-day basis. So, um, I think those, that's a great example. One, One highly relatable thing we can speak to is, you know, my wife and I converted our garage into a garage gym and we have a heavy bag and a variety of things. And, uh, you know, we'll train fairly intensely sometimes. I mean, right, ebbs and flows. Uh, but, you know, with my background in strength and conditioning, I enjoy doing clean. Sometimes I like, I'll just go round after round on the heavy bag and I used to compete. So I think to my neighbors, sometimes one of them came up and was like, uh, you kind of freaked me out when you moved into this neighborhood. And I'm like, well, why? And then I start thinking about, it. I'm like, okay, they hear Eminem, Jay-Z, 50 Cent blaring from my radio. Uh, and then they see this guy going nuts on a heavy bag. And I'm like, well, no, you can feel free to come use it, you know, anytime you'd like. We, my family and I are from the Midwest. We, we value that community. Now, I'll be frank, if all of a sudden start coming, if 30 of them start coming and say, hey, can you train me? That's not <laughs> the goal, right? <laughs> but right. but I, it's funny how sometimes the most obvious answers are right in front of us and you, you nailed it. It's perception. It's do I belong here? Is this intimidating? Does this feel like me? And people are going to make that decision really quickly, right? Like seven seconds or less, maybe. Um, is there anything that you've been able to do with the programs uh, that, that you lead that kind of um, hit that nail on the head? Is there something that you tell them right off the bat if they do join a community that you spearhead? And this could, I mean, feel free to even if this is your research assistants or people that, that come work out at your lab or what have you, what are some things you do to make them feel comfortable and a little bit more united uh, so they feel like they're a part of it? Yeah, I think especially, you know, if if we're doing a research lab or a group activity or a group exercise class, doing introductions, just really simply going around the room and letting the new people know who's there, 
who, who are they surrounded by? Um, you know, in the case of the group exercise, maybe it's how long the other people have been coming. And maybe they realize that, oh, this person next to me, they started last week. And so maybe I feel a little more comfortable talking to them than the people that have been doing this for five years. Um, and so honestly, like introducing people, letting them know that they're welcome, um, even orienting them to like, where's the bathroom? Where can I set my stuff down? Where's the drinking fountain? Um, so that they feel comfortable in their surroundings as well. That Those little efforts go a long way at the very start. Yeah, I, th- I think those are those are incredibly practical. And what, what was interesting is I had read some research recently, Katie, that had said, you know, during times of chaos, communication skills are usually the first things to go. Well, I also think in times of change and fast-paced uh, scenarios or when we're trying to grow something, uh, let's say a community in this instance, it's, it's the things that are simple that we tend to negate, right? Like do an introduction. Uh, I'll forget sometimes when we run our workshops to do an introduction because I'm so caught up and want to make sure things run on time. And I'm like, you idiot. You know what I mean? Like you forgot to do an introduction. Now people are going to have to get comfortable with improv and introduce themselves and, <laughs> and I'll kick myself. Um, I, I think it was interesting one other time, and this leads to something I wanted to ask you. I remember Robert Cialdini talking about all these little nuances such as facial similarities can ignite this kind of unity principle. Do we have the same birth date? You and I, you know, again, alumni, Kansas State University, being in the same place, we see research on localism. Like even if somebody just roots for the same sports team, right? Like, so so not just introductions, but finding these quirky ways to find commonalities. What What is maybe a surprising thing where you, you, it could be a colleague, it could be a research assistant, it could be your significant other where something got off on the wrong foot and you were like, uh, yeah, I don't know if I vibe hurt here or with you or what have you. And then maybe the smallest thing all of a sudden sparked the conversation that you're like, wow, we have this in common. And I understand that might take a moment. I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah. So actually an example that popped in my mind was, you know, there's ways that you're supposed to wear your mask, right? When you put your mask on, it's supposed to cover your nose and your mouth and ideally go over your chin too, right? Because it's not letting the air out. And there was this uh, student who came into our gym this semester and his mask is constantly below his nose. And it just drove me nuts. And the coach would be like, you know, reminding him, please, please pull up your mask. You know, please make sure that your, your face is fully covered. And I'm just like, what is wrong with that guy? And we, I I got to know him better because we would always come into the gym um, outside of class times to do extra stuff. So I started talking to him and um, found out that, you know, he's from Serbia. I'm collaborating on some other uh, police and firefighter research with a guy from Serbia. Um, And he's just this really awesome, wonderful student um, who, you know, my first impression was like, I don't like you because you're not following the rules you're supposed to. And now he's one of my favorite people. And I'm going to be really sad when he graduates at the end of the semester and, and moves on. Yeah, it's, it's a great example, especially because I think sometimes we get frustrated as coaches, leaders, guides, educators, whatever term anybody wants to use for what they do. Uh, there's usually this one person that might frustrate us and we tend to want to cast them off. But those are the people you really do have to lean into because to a degree, it's the outcasts and rebels that make you relearn something yourself, you know, either about, oh, okay, maybe I was I was not uh, being as aware as I'd like to be, or maybe they'll show you an example of how you are in a certain situation. I, I tell coaches this all the time. 
you complain about stubborn folks you lead, yet where in your life are you stubborn? Where are you in your life where Katie and I could give you as much information as possible and you're not going to change? I mean, we, we have people that have listened all 100 by the time your episode comes out. We'll be in the 160s, maybe 170s. And they still might not have changed a behavior that they wanted to change by listening to the show. Um, is there an area where you're particular stubborn even now with all the tremendous knowledge you have and, and life experience? Where are you the most stubborn in almost even a silly way? Gosh, I don't know. My husband would probably say at home. <laughs> in what respect? I I don't know. I, you know, I'm a planner. I like to have everything kind of mapped out, planned out. And so then maybe I'm not quite as spontaneous about doing things. Um, I don't know. I'm sure he could tell you all the ways that I'm stubborn, but you know, because it's me, um, I can't really think of like super specific examples because, because that's, um, you know, that's, that's my behavior. So it's really hard to see it because, um, I'm doing it. (laughs) Yeah. That's the nature of why they call it a blind spot. Uh, staying on the topic of stubbornness for a moment. So we talked about communication barriers, uh, with different respects, community building. And we talked about how life has changed since COVID a- academia is not academic institutions rather are not always known for their communication prowess, right? Large institutions, a lot, a lot of machinations behind the scenes. Uh, what were some of the things, if we have anybody that's an aspiring uh, academic or somebody that's maybe in academia right now and they feel like, oh, this institution's driving me nuts that I work for, but they pay my bills. What, what were some things that you felt like you had to learn how to adapt to? Some things that you feel like uh, are perhaps changing in academia and maybe what you hope for the future so that it's less rigid and, and there's fewer barriers to entry. Wow, that's a lot. Okay. Um, and take it wherever you want. I understand that's a lot. <laughs> Let's start with this. What are the base, what are the things that you know anybody that's worked in academia would nod their heads to immediately if you're like, well, these are some common frustrations uh, that we deal with? Everything takes forever <laughs> Perfect. To, to get processed. Um, so I don't know. We start with the process of getting... Um, you know, you come in as an assistant professor and you need to go the promote through the promotion and tenure process. And so you start that from day one and then five to seven years later, you actually submit your materials, you submit them in the fall, and then you don't even know until the next spring whether or not you're, you're getting promoted and tenured or not. Um, it takes forever. You have a research project you submit it for grant funding in February. I submitted a grant application in February. It will get reviewed in, I think, the end of June, beginning of July. And I'll know a preliminary score. If it gets a good enough score to get funded by the National Institutes of Health, it won't get funded until October or November. And then it'll take me five years to do the study. And who knows how much longer after that to get the results out. Sometimes you can't pay people for the work that they do. So for example, if I wanted to coach a class in our gym, because I'm on salary for the department, I can't can't get paid for that because they can't pay me more than one way. So there's just all these little nuances and, you know, we want to make a change. Well, it has to go through, you know, the, the approval process, which takes about six different steps to do and then 
you know, either people vote on it or maybe an administrator approves it. And just, you know, compared to the business world, academia is very, very, very slow. And that can be very frustrating um, to, to realize how long these processes are going to take. Um, I can give you more examples if you want to. But I'll stop I, well, there. I, think that's, I think that's an excellent <laughs> example. And the reason, you know, now I'll kind of unveil why I asked you that is, you know, part of mentoring, which is something that you and I have talked about before, is about helping future professionals. And it doesn't have to be future because I think we get caught up sometimes on like, if it's a young professional, it can be transitioning professionals. Maybe somebody's changing jobs, right? And they're going from one uh, career to another or what have you. So future professionals, transitioning professionals, what have you, kind of see the unseen, right? We have to help them understand, hey, you, you got a lot to your name. You have the required credentials and the requisite education background, but here's the shit that, you know, you need to learn. And uh, like, th that's the thing that I think is always tricky is from a mentoring standpoint, how do you manage that? You know, whether it's research assistance you have now, or if somebody just asks you off the cuff, how do you balance? Like, I want to let them know the messy realities, but I don't want them to come in so jaded that they don't appreciate the process. Yeah. Um, it's, it's tough. And it's also another piece is, remembering what you didn't know at that stage. And then, oh, this is what I didn't know and I've learned over time because sometimes you get far enough along in your career and you kind of lose track of all those little things, that little knowledge you accumulated over time that got you where you are now. Um, but what I, what I try to do is, you know, they're gonna get the content knowledge in the classes that they're, they're taking. Um, so I don't really worry as much about that. What I actually have a passion for is professional development. And so I developed a graduate class specifically focused on that. And one of the things framing my thought process in developing that class was, what were all of the things that I really should have learned as a PhD student or a graduate student that I didn't learn? And I kind of, you know, learned trial by fire as a faculty member. And it's interesting because a lot of those focused on communication and the things that you did, the things that you learned information. The, the, when you say that, you mean the things that you did, you, you learned that as part of, or you did what, not get that. What frame, what I didn't learn yeah. was all these different ways that I needed to be able to communicate, whether that was teaching a class of students whether that was reaching out to funders, whether, the, you know, for my research, whether that was um, communicating with other scientists and professionals. And I just, I, I didn't necessarily learn those. Those weren't part of the curriculum and they still aren't necessarily part of, of our curriculum in higher education. And so I've, I've tried to um, impart those through that class as well as then through my, my research lab and the regular meetings and trainings and skill sessions that we do. You know, and, and with that, I'm glad you said that. And uh, we, we try to ask a number of guests this because it is important to get varying perspectives. You know, these things aren't taught to your point, you know, communication is not taught, which, it, which is odd because we know that there's scientific validity behind the construct of communication. People are social animals. It's how we became the preeminent social animal of on earth. Uh, it's how we have to navigate the messy realities. What would you say to the person? We're playing a little devil's advocate here. What if I looked at you and said, well, Katie, 
I, I don't really need to learn communication. I do it every day as part of my job. And so uh, I, I've become a better negotiator by losing negotiations. I've become better at being assertive by knowing what it's like to get my teeth kicked in, you know, in, in an argument, whatever. What, do you, what would you say to somebody like that that thinks that this is just a byproduct of life experience? I would say that people who are the most effective communicators tend to um, tend to be able to get things done better. And communication is not just a byproduct. It is a skill that has to be practiced and constantly improved. All right, taking a quick break here to state the obvious. Nothing has higher carryover to improve team dynamics in sport, business, or really any aspect of life than improved communication. Now, ironically, many leaders don't seek training in this space outside of quote-unquote life experience. But imagine if members of the military, doctors, etc., only leaned on life experience and no training in communication. And I'll frame it even another way. What true leader would ever choose not to get better at how they interact with others during high-stakes situations. Well, if you agree with me on this, then you'll be glad to know that we've posted final dates for our apprenticeship workshops. Now, Dallas, Texas is coming up June 26th and 27th. So make sure to go to artofcoaching.com forward slash apprenticeship now. If you can't make Dallas, we also have Chicago, Illinois, Seattle, Boston, Nashville, and we're gonna be in the UK in October. These are all dates in 2021, and you guys can save anywhere from $350 to $500 if you book now, and if you've taken our courses, any of our online courses, you get an additional discount. So please, please, please do not miss this opportunity. We open these up to people from all different kinds of professions, and there's a lot of role-playing and interaction and video breakdown and instruction here. So artofcoaching.com forward slash apprenticeship, artofcoaching.com forward slash apprenticeship. And before we get back, if you want to bring our courses into your university, like we've done with Kansas State University, make sure to reach out to info at artofcoaching.com. We offer our bespoke online masterclass style produced quality courses into user-friendly course curriculums. And we've done this with Kansas State and we're working with other universities right now. So if you know an educator in your family or your network, please have them reach out to info at artofcoaching.com. We also do this for onboarding for organizations as well. We want to help. All right. Thanks for your time. Back to Dr. Heinrich. Communication is not just a byproduct. It is a skill that has to be practiced and constantly improved. Um, you know, my main form of communication, a key form of communication for researchers, for academics, is our publications and presentations. And I'm still learning better ways to write and to translate my science for different audiences. I definitely am not an expert, and I've been at this for the past. I don't know what year is it, 2021, <laughs> so past 20 or so years, you know, um, so it's, it's a skill. It's not a byproduct and you have to practice it. Yeah. I think, um, 
One thing that that struck me as odd and where I had to even kick myself a little bit is I remember being this idealist, uh, you know, 22 to 25 year old strength and conditioning coach. And, you know, you'd see the internet, you'd see things that were written on the internet and certain articles and they kind of seemed clickbaity. And I was just like, wow, who uses this term? Who uses this? This is the right. And I, I envisioned myself as this, uh, craftsman, this person that would never sell out, you know, certain ideals and what have you. And of course I'm not, I'm not just talking about integrity or whatever. It was more about language. I'd never use that language. And then what I found as you start working with more athletes, getting into the real world, having conversations with people in other fields that have no idea what you do and they don't want to hear your jargon. Um, and more importantly, trying to get other coaches and, and professionals to be aware is that you do have to translate that language. I mean, there's times we've, we've said internally, Hey guys, I know this headline might be a little clickbaity on the newsletter, but it's going to get people to read the information that they need. Um, it's like when somebody has to have a commercial with a jingle, believe me, I'm sure companies would love to not to spend millions of dollars to get you to buy a product that could actually improve your life. But the fact is, is humans are kind of dumb sometimes and we need the jingle and we need, we need uh, the phrasing to be a certain way. And then I realized, oh, okay. Uh, I, I would say the most concrete example, and I'd love you to give me your opinion on this, is we've always tried to stay away from soft skills at Art of Coaching, that term. One, because I just think that, I think it's a dumb term. I get it, I understand it, but a, the, the soft skill just seems like it's, uh, it connotates that it's not as necessary as something that's hard and tangible. I think communication, good and poor, is very tangible. It's visceral, you feel it. Um, and I think it's also just been bastardized. When we hear about soft skills, it's always been this nebulous, thing. But then what I realized is if I told people, Hey, communication or interpersonal skills or whatever to them, regardless of my perception. And I knew what those terms meant to them. That was even more nebulous. They're like, Oh, so you mean soft skills. So then I, and I just slapped my head for anybody that, that heard that. <laughs> then I realized some of our marketing around this has to use that term because that's the term people understand. And then once they're in the ecosystem, will give them that ethical research back underpinnings of what it really is. Does that make sense? Or to you, you know, like, do you feel like there's never a place for that? And you can disagree. This is not a podcast you need to, uh, but do you feel like sometimes we have to go indirect to get direct and, and make that intervention really stick? Or where do you think the balance is? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're trying to draw people in, whatever strategies work, Right. Um, you know, we, I mean, I have, I, I, you made me think about what does my syllabus have in that professional development class? And I believe I have a session on soft skills, but what those are, are people skills. Yeah. Um, and just being able to, to interact with others. Um, I'm going to sidestep here and Please. say in our program at K-State, we have an undergrad, uh, an area that focuses on exercise physiology, what's going on in the body um, and understanding the body systems. And then we have behavioral science and that's really how do we get people to do the behavior? Yeah. And a lot of students who come in and want to go on to, you know, physical therapy school or whatever health profession it is, they say, well, why do I need the behavior science? I just want to do the, the physiology stuff. So mm. I know what's going on with the body and then they get out in the field and they realize it's the behavior side. It's being able to interact with people. It's, it's having those soft skills. Those are the ones that they use every day. Yes, they need that underlying physiological knowledge, 
but they have got to understand and be able to interact effectively with people to keep them on, you know, adhering to their PT regimen or whatever it is. So, um, you know, my thought is if we have to not trick people, but if we have to, you know, use different terms to get people in the door, so be it. But I, you know, we're still going to deliver something that's very valuable to them. Yeah. Or for them. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that is one thing that drove me nuts. And then this idea that these are, these are hard to quantify, you know, and, and I get that uh, from the outside looking in, it may look like they're hard to quantify, but I was surprised, right? You just dive into this stuff a little bit. It's actually not hard to quantify because we know that uh, perception is a real thing and there's always going to be a perceptual gap, right? One of the things I happen to love about teaching communication now is it makes me incessantly aware of how poor I am at it. The difference is, is at one point in my career that might offend me, right? It might offend me if you said, hey, Brad, these are some areas you really struggle. And I might be like, well, screw you. You don't know my context, right? But now it it's, uh, I want to think of how I use my words carefully here. No, yeah, this is the correct choice. It is addicting because I want to, I want to continue to get better and at that. And I'll embrace that messiness a little bit because it's not as, Listen, I can sit here and have an argument with somebody all day of, you know, what degree they should turn their toes out when they squat. That's highly individual based on, you know, like their anatomy and, and what have you. But the way we communicate and what's good and what's bad and what's appropriate and even my tone that I'm using right now, which might turn some people off that are listeners to like an NPR podcast, but they might like this podcast. It's so variable and that's life. Life's variable. So I guess by default, what I'm saying is what addicted me to it and drew me to it was that you know, I need things in my, that are going to help me in the real world. And if that means that I have to face that I'm imperfect more often, but I can get an edge constantly iterating that I'd rather do that than have these discussions about something in a vacuum that is never going to have one answer. Does that, does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, part, part of higher education is feeling uncomfortable and facing all of those things that you don't know. I mean, there's multiple times I will listen to a presenter and I'm like, wow, they are so smart, you know? And, and then I start thinking about, you know, well, why am I not so smart? And here I am, you know, a, a tenured full professor, so I shouldn't be worried about that. But, um, you know, we, we all can constantly improve. And the nice thing about being in, in academia is you should, and you're given opportunities to, um, because, you know, not only are you training other people, but you're always getting the chance to go to those yourselves. And so it's this, um, being a lifelong learner, you know, that's being in academia is really set, set me up to do that. And I appreciate that about this field, but it also does lead you to, you know, Oh, I'm not the best and I need to be constantly improving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but that, to your point, this pull of formality, uh, insecurity, and even a sense of urgency can really erode our ability to be relatable and to communicate well. And so I think that goes back to your earlier example of when you told, you know, your students, you had a bad day, you know, that that's a great example, very strong communication where some people that I think buy into kind of guruism or typical leadership stuff would say, no, you shouldn't show that weakness. You know, I, I think the thing that I would ask folks like that is, you know, well then if you think communication is inherent and you think it's this thing and, or that maybe you don't think it's not important, you know, how do you know when you've done a good job communicating with somebody else? And I remember somebody telling me and a brilliant person, so this isn't casting aspersions, 
we had a great laugh about it afterwards because they realized the blind spot. I said, how do you know when you've done a good job communicating with somebody else? And they said, well, did, did what I ask for to happen happened? And I go, well, that, that's interesting because couldn't that insinuate that they were compliant and not committed, right? Just if somebody follows through with an order doesn't mean they do so with a plum. Um, I imagine you have to struggle with that a bit, you know, being in your position in, in academia, you find this middle ground of needing to engage your students and there has to be consequences for when they don't do what is asked. But inherently, you also have to think of some things that give them autonomy so that there's a shared ownership of the assignment or the learning of the material. Talk to me a little bit about how you manage that. You know, this idea of there's rigid expectations that, that the institution wants, but you want to deliver it in a way that's personal, relatable, and practical for the future, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that we've kind of had to change some of our approaches with COVID because the students have been dealing with so much mentally, emotionally, socially on top of the coursework. And like most of them, they didn't sign up to take courses online and then all of a sudden they were. And so I actually, I have a motto that I developed for this year and that's challenge, support, and kind. And so I want to challenge the students and let them know that, you know, I want them to do well. I expect them to work hard in order to be successful. But at the same time, I'm going to support them in those efforts to, you know, to be successful and those struggles that they're having. But then ultimately, at the end of the day, I also want to be kind. And I don't want to penalize them if, because of circumstances outside of their control, they are unable to perform to the best of their ability. And how do I know if that happens? Because they have to, from communicating with them, they have to feel comfortable enough to tell me about that. And so some of the things I've done is like give the students an exam and the first exam, um, it was kind of weird because we had to cancel some classes because of COVID and weather related things. Actually it was weather. It was when it was so cold. Um, and I just felt like they were coming into the first exam unprepared and they didn't do so great. And so I offered them the chance, you know, Hey, you can correct the items that you got wrong. And, um, Oh, and I let them take the exam open note, open book. Um, and so just figuring out, you know, it last semester, I, um, rather than having a reading quiz, I had students fill out questions where they um, identified what were they struggling with right now and what did they do, what strategies did they have to do with stress and who or what did they have at their, as their support system. And then I gave them an assignment to reach out to those individuals and thank them for their support. So they, they were able to give some affirmations. And so, you know, not always making it about having to perform perfectly and recall the content, but making space for error and scaffolding support in there and including communication. That's a great example, right? Because what they're getting here, even though the the in-person learning had been affected, the experiential learning they're getting as a result of having to adapt to the chaos of this time, right? And then you leveraging that and saying, okay, we can't do this, but here's what we can do. I understand that 
there are some heavy things happening in the world right now. How can I mesh what I wanted to teach you with what would be practical and what you can do now, right? Checking in with somebody, being able to do this and that. And it really does lend insight into that old uh, political mantra of never let a good crisis go to waste. You know, of course, we're talking about it in a more positive way. Uh, but, but it does still get interesting when people complain about a lack of engagement. It could be in the workplace. It could be in the classroom. It could be at home. And, and they say the other person's not engaged. And it's like, well, are you still using the same tools? Like what, what are you doing? Like, because inherently we're given these constraints, which is a term we talk a lot about on this show. Why not just leverage them? You know, um, I think another example, and I definitely want to introduce you to him is the gentleman that's overseeing some of my doctoral research, uh, John Kiley. Sometimes he just gives me space. He knows that, you know, I'm, I'm working on a new book. I'm running a business during a pandemic. You know, my, my athletes are back in town. I have a baby boy and, you know, we, we were having meetings and he's doing a great job of like staying on top of me. And I eventually just said, listen, uh, there's a level of kind of uh, psychological burnout that is specific to me writing right now. I think we just need to give this a moment. And, and he did. Um, he's like, why don't we check in after your next apprenticeship? Because uh, he knew that communication workshop was coming up. And it was just nice, you know, and I understand that we can't always do that. But what he probably didn't realize is by him doing that and taking a level of understanding I'm always going to be dedicated to giving him a little bit higher quality where if he forced me to just to go through it and we have that mindset of like, you know, tough crap, be a professional, get it done. I mean, fine, I'll get it done, but you're going to get, you're going to, you're not going to get something great. You know, I'm going to meet this. And that goes back to why I always say, Hey, how did you know if you've done a good job communicating just because something got done doesn't mean that you did a good job communicating. So, um, anything you wanted to add on that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a great point. And, you know, even just as a mentor, being able to understand what my mentees are going through and if they do need it, giving them space and time, because the things that we're dealing with in our own lives can inhibit our ability to produce. And so sometimes you have to take a step back, deal with those things, take a deep breath, and then you can move forward. And so being able, you know, that, that is great by your mentor to be able to recognize that in you. It wasn't a lack of desire or motivation on your part to do a good job. It was just, you couldn't, and you needed to take that breath. And so I think, you know, that's something important if you are in a position of power or leadership or mentoring to, to really, you know, talk, talk with your mentees about that, give them a comfortable space where they're, you know, able to share that with you as well. Yeah. And, and if, if there's no communication, there's no commonality. If there's no commonality, there's no connection. And so, you know, you, you talk about helping, you're obviously passionate about communication and education. You're trying to mentor in a way tomorrow's educators, you know, to, to be a little bit more astute at these things. What are some of the biggest soft skill deficiencies that you see? And of course, you know, people always love to make this generational and, and we can definitely go there, but like just in general, whether it's, whether it's generational, whether it's folks that get into research space or folks that want to become professors or, you know, again, wherever you'd like to take it, where are you seeing some of the biggest deficiencies with respect to communication? Being able to appropriately write an email. <laughs> I can appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. You know, not getting an email that says, hey, Dr. Heinrich, and then, you know, continues on with something or, 
you know, I'm teaching multiple classes and I get an email from a student, hey, I can't be in class today. Well, which class is it that they're in? And sometimes I have students in more than one class at the same time. Um, and so just some basic email etiquette, etiquette because they're so used to, you know, texting or, or things like that. But also um, it's kind of hard sometimes for students to take criticism on their writing and understand that that's being done in a constructive way, mm -hmm. as well as how to give constructive feedback to other students on their writing. Writing is a huge part of, of science. Um, and so I think those probably are the, are the two key areas that I've noticed maybe some, some deficiencies. Um, you know, some students are better at communicating in person, giving presentations than others. You know, that's that really hasn't changed over time. Yeah, I think um, I'm glad you brought that up. And this definitely wasn't in sync. But, what, you know, one time I had elaborated on a subject that I really didn't think was going to be that interesting to people. I thought it was just going to be pretty nerdy to me. And we talked about the eight components of communication. And, and within that was, hey, there's the medium right? Is, is it a written email? Is it a text? Is it an in-person in conversation? What have you? Um, the channel, right? What connects the message and the medium, uh, the people involved, the other context, types of noise and feedback. And I just kind of put it out there and we got a tremendous response of people being like, wow, like that in of itself helped me realize where I was having a lot of deficiencies. And so what we ended up doing, and we do it at our workshop now, is we have people bring case studies in of when they had an issue with, let's say it was a student or a colleague or a coworker, and we're able to sit them down and take them through these components and say, where do you think, it, where's the origin of this? And even if you don't know, what might have been the origin of this? Um, I know that sometimes I'm guilty of, of poor uh, email communication because I'm, one, I don't like email, but that's never an excuse to write poorly. But uh, so that's usually not the reason I write poorly, but if I do, I try to say, Hey, my apologies for the relative brevity, you know, and I try to at least give context that this might, and this is never an initial introduction to somebody, right? This might be somebody I have previous, um, goodwill and understanding. So they know my schedule. I know theirs. And I'll say, Hey, Christian, let me use that example. Bring our third party friend in here. Pardon the relative warmth and brevity running to a flight. Here's what I'm wondering. Can you let me know? Boom. But it's amazing if you take that little bit of information out or you take the preceding relation out, right? Like imagine you and I not really knowing one another and I come on and I'm like, all right, Katie, what do you know? You know, it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? There's, there's so much wrong. So where do you start with some of those students that, it, this is, I know it's a big question. You need to have a course called the art of the email. Where do you, where do you even start? No, do you just come at them and say, hey, I know this isn't going to be feedback you want to hear, but- this is going to be helpful because someday you're going to need to write a grant and you'd rather hear it from me than somebody that turned you down for a million dollars. How do you broach that? You can just give one example because I know there's, it's going to vary. Sure. Yeah. I was going to say it would depend on whether it's a student who I don't know or for one sure. that's in my research lab. So if it's one that's in my research lab who I interact with quite a bit, like we would spend some time um, actually practicing writing um, to different individuals. And I think what's always really helpful is giving them an example. So here's a good example and here's a bad example. Now think about the last email that you sent. Where does it fall along this continuum of good and bad examples? And just them being able to then practice the skill and receive feedback, whether it's from me, whether it's from you know their peers or graduate students, 
um, in the research lab, that's that's how I would uh, approach that. Yep. Now, uh, I'll have to send this to you. Maybe it can uh, make your life a little easier. So we had gotten our fair share of interesting emails as well. So I ended up creating a PDF about how to find a mentor. I think it's on artofcoaching.com forward slash find a mentor. And it went through, hey, what should you look for in a mentor? What's expected of you as a mentee? And more importantly, how do you reach out to somebody appropriately via email to ask them to mentor you? Because it was amazing. Uh, and this doesn't say much about me as a person. I'm sorry, this is bad, I know. But the thing that drives me crazy is when people say, can I pick your brain? <laughs> you know, like, hey, I'm in town. Uh, can I grab coffee and pick your brain? And I know what they think they're saying, right? They're trying to say, I respect you. I'd like to spend some time with you. But when somebody says, I'm in town, can we meet for coffee and pick your brain? There's just so much assumption. There's so much assumption of like, okay, I'm in town. Are you in town? I like coffee. Do you want coffee? Um, And by the way, I'm going to pick your brain on a wide variety of things. It's like, give me some con, make it easier for me to say yes. Now, I think that's one thing I try to share with people is make it easy for them to say yes or whatever that behavior might be. Uh, What is your, what's, um, what's a secret weapon of yours when you write an email? If you're mindful about nothing else, let's say you are writing to um, pitch something, right? Like you, uh, maybe you want to share an idea or you want to be connected with somebody. But, and we're doing role playing here. Sorry, you, you signed on for this. <laughs> More than anything else, what's the number one thing you personally always want to make sure you get right? Try to identify a commonality. Beautiful, beautiful. And what will you do? Will you, I imagine you'll research that person's profile a little bit, background? Yeah. I mean, it could be an interest. It could be, um, you know, a common person that we know. Um, it it just identifying somewhere, it kind of like that community aspect somewhere where you can make a connection that goes just beyond, uh, you know, the ask. Yep. That's huge. And where, where do you find you need the most help right now? You know, and this can be your personal professional life switching gears a little bit, but when we talk about mentoring, right, you're involved in that, uh, and you may not have a direct mentor or what have you, but if you did or you do, where, where do you feel like you, you would like the most help or assistance or guidance at right now? Oh gosh. Well, let me first say I've had some awesome mentors who still mentor me and support me. So that, that has been awesome, but, um, gosh, I don't know, maybe I, you know, it's, it's a constant tr- struggle of how to say no and what to say no to mm. so that you're not overloaded because, you know, you're constantly presented with all kinds of opportunities and which are the ones that you really want to say yes to and which are the ones to say no to. I'm constantly struggling with that. Yeah. And, and what kind of opportunities, if you're comfortable sharing, uh, what kind um, of- Oh yeah. I mean, it could be like, will you review this manuscript or I mean, I don't know, yesterday I got three manuscript review requests. It it could be reviewing grants. It could be providing service to a national organization. It could be serving on communities, communities, committees for the department or the university. Um, It could be things uh, for my church. I'm also a pastor of a church. You know, I mean, just all those things. My husband and I are the coaches for my four-year-old daughter's soccer team because no other parents volunteered, you know, is that something I probably should have said no to? Probably. Is it been a lot of fun? Yes. Am I learning a lot? Yeah. But you know, so that's just, 
as you go on throughout life, as people, you know, know who you are, they recognize you're good at things. You're constantly going to get asked, like, can I come pick your brain or can I pick your brain while you're in town? And just figuring out, I guess it's two things. I guess it's figuring out what to say no to, but it's also figuring out how to say no in a way that you're not burning bridges further down the line when maybe you would like to make an ask of that person or organization yourself. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that that speaks highly to the nature of again having some level of self-awareness, doing your due diligence, understanding boundaries even. You know, I think an area that I've had to get better at is is not feeling guilt or shame when I turn something away or someone away. I I always had a poor time uh, well, thinking about how I want to phrase this, I, I would know when I was being used for something, but I had this insatiable desire to help maybe because I felt like I didn't have a lot of help, you know, at certain parts of my career. So even though I knew like, nah, this person might be a jackass, you know, like I'd, I'd kind of go in and, um, it wasn't because I wanted to feel like better or superior. It was just because it's almost reflexive, right? You get in this reflexive thing. But I remember one time where I officially got better at it is there was a gentleman reaching out. He's in academia as well and very sharp. Again, means well. I always give people the benefit of the doubt. But it asks a question about essentially um, how to build uh, a brand uh, for himself because he was getting more speaking requests and what have you. And it was it was fairly broad, right? Hadn't talked to this person probably a couple of years. Hey, Brett, how do, you, how do you build a brand? Okay, that leads me then writing an email back saying, hey, nice hearing from you can you give me more insight here? What's, what's the goal? What's the mission? What's the struggle? Ask more questions. So I give him some tidbits and just say, Hey, you know, full, uh, full disclosure, we have something coming out that'll walk you through this root to the fruit. Cause I've gotten this question a lot and the email medium is never going to allow me to, to communicate what, what this course can do. Great. Thanks. This is super helpful. Whatever. Uh, and then a fifth email, a sixth email, a seventh email. And I got to the point where my bandwidth was stretched and I was getting frustrated, right? There was not a recognition of, of my time and what have you. And here's my wife saying, you know, listen, like, just leave it be, give him the link for the course. And if he's that serious about it and he respects your work, he'll get the course. And, you know, I waited for a seventh and eventually I was just like, Hey man, listen, this is what it is. I want to help you. I'm making this course. I know it could seem like I'm trying to sell you something. I guess, ironically, I am but I need you to trust that I'm selling you this because it answers your questions more effectively than I can in eight to nine disparate emails. This won't help. And you know, when I noticed, I, I followed back up a couple months later, hey, did you ever check out the course? Uh, no, I don't have time or money right now. And I just thought, think about the irony of that. You, you know what I mean? Think about you not being worried. And it, it's not about me, it's about the other professionals out there, you or what have you. Some people will have no problem wasting your time and your money and your emotional resources but heaven forbid, you know, they ever have to put some of theirs in the pot. Where I'm going with that is I wonder about what your take on student accountability is now, or even mentee accountability. We often hear again that this is a generational thing or what have you. I mean, you've, you've taught for how long? How long have you been in education some form? Um, since, two, uh, since 2000, so okay. over 20 years. Yeah, so you've seen, you know, you, you've seen some, some variances culturally, generationally, do you think it's that easy or to just peg a lack of accountability or this expectancy on that? Or what do you think it is that drives that in today's culture that people just expect to be spoon fed? Yeah. Without uh, investment, mind you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because any student that I get is paying. <laughs> to yeah. Paying tuition. There. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. So that's a tough dichotomy. To take yeah. a class. 
Um, but you know, I think sometimes people don't realize what they're getting themselves into. And then they kind of have this learned helpless response, um, where, you know, they, they don't think they can do it. So they want you to do it for them. Um, but I think part of that is, you know, it's on you to set the expectations. And so I, I try to do that. I haven't always done that well in the past. I've gotten a lot better (laughs) at that over time because of failures. Um, So, you know, it's not, and it could also be that they're doing that behavior because there are other things going on in their lives that they can't control that they also will not ever tell you about. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I really think it's important to, you know, if you can get to somebody's story and, and what's going on to, you know, understand really what's driving their behavior. And you may never get there. Um, and there are definitely students that I've had to give up on, um, you know, over time, which isn't a good feeling, but it happens because, you know, it's not, it's not a failure on your part if somebody else is acting that way. That's, you know, that's on them. I think that's something that our, uh, a lot of our listeners need to hear. I think that that's something that will get replayed a lot and it could almost be a podcast on its own of saying, when do you, and I will use the term give up. You know, I have this conversation with my mother. My mother feels like you never give up on somebody. And I said, well, you know, I probably used to share that with you too, you know, but sometimes you think that you're not giving up on somebody is serving them and it's not. That person, I mean, when I was hospitalized, there weren't people coming there for me day in and day out. Eventually that was on me to figure those things out, you know? And um, it's interesting because that leads to all kinds of things. Like some people feel oh, well, that could give somebody abandonment issues and what have you. Listen, life's going to give you something. And and nobody can be there for you every moment, every step of the way. And that's why I think, you know, this concept of how we view leadership, this overly positivistic kind of way, it's, it's no, sometimes it's a little dirtier than that, you know, and, and you're doing the right thing sometimes by by taking that route. Man, you yeah. kind of, you hit me with something I wasn't expecting there. That's a, <laughs> that's a heck of a way to, to end episode one. We are going to do an episode two without a doubt. I want to be conscious of your time. Uh, where can people get connected with you? Where's the number? How can they support your work? How can they get in touch with you? What's, what's the best way to interact? And we'll put this all in the show notes as well for you. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I have a research lab page and, and things like that, but who, who goes there? <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. Um, I, I respond to emails, definitely not phone calls. I don't even know who calls and leaves voice messages <laughs> anymore. Um, but yeah, any of those ways by email, um, reach out and I'm all happy to, you know, read your well-crafted email and respond. <laughs> yes. And we will make sure to help you with that. We will put the how to find and reach out to a mentor link in the bottom. So guys, not that I'm the perfect email curator, but at least take a look at it before you reach out to Katie. Listen, I have to thank you because there were so many places we could go and you were so open and this is what a conversation should be. So I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it, it this was one of the most enjoyable just conversations that I've had in a long time. So I want to thank you. Sure. Thank you very much for the chance to to talk with you. Yeah, absolutely. We'll do it again. Make sure you stay on. Everybody else, 
Until next time, Brett Bartholomew, Dr. Katie Heinrich, Art of Coaching Podcast. Share it with a friend. Make sure you're subscribed. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Talk to you soon.